how can this how can this be? You go in to have a baby, you end up, you know, under a heart doctor and a colorectal surgeons for the rest of your life. You know, and the thing about it is if he had checked me at the time, if he had taken time to do a proper examination, there's a huge chance that I would not have suffered. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Medical error and harm can take many forms and occurs in almost every medical context, except perhaps during autopsies. So when a medical error occurs during a joyous event like childbirth, it can not only impact the immediate experience, but may also cause lifelong suffering and disability. This is what happened to Carol Senex when she went to the hospital to give birth to her son Kai. It was a hard labor and they had to use a suction device to pull Kai out. But the doctor failed to check Carol for internal damage after that difficult procedure. This would prove to be catastrophic to Carol's health and future. To make matters exponentially worse, the medical error and the damage it was causing was not detected for so long that any hope of Carol recovering her normal bodily functions is seemingly gone. Layered on top of that is the betrayal Carol subsequently experienced by both the healthcare and legal systems. Carol and I talk about her experiences and what she's doing to make meaning out of someone else's failure to do their job. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, on any of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Carol Sunnex and a word of caution as always that some folks may be triggered by Carol's experiences with the healthcare system. Thanks, Carol. Uh, so where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? 
Okay, so I grew up in the east end of Glasgow, um, just on the outskirts of the city centre of Glasgow. Um, I lived with my mum and dad, um, and I have a twin sister, Marie. Um, I have an older brother, Thomas, and an older sister, Elizabeth. Identical or fraternal twins? No, no, we're not identical. Um, we're completely different in every way, <laughs> every way possible. <laughs> except for your birth date. Yeah, except for my birth date, although I am 10 minutes older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I do like to state that, 10 minutes. <laughs> so that was your childhood. Where did your adulthood take you? Um, when I was 22, I got married for the first time and went to stay in the south side of Glasgow. Um, unfortunately, the marriage didn't, didn't last very long and ended up back at my parents' house within the first year of, the, of being married. So I spent the next maybe 12 years back staying with my parents. I had decided at that time that I wanted to concentrate on my career. I'd kind of put everything aside. I'd get married young. So when the opportunity came for me to kind of, I suppose, live my life a bit and get my career on track and, and do things that, that young people like to do, I managed to start going on holiday with my friends and going to concerts and spending my money when, <laughs> you know, I didn't need to worry. So, yeah, that was, um, that ended up uh, doing that. And at the time... I worked for um, Glasgow City Council at the time. So I had a good job, had good money um, and lots of freedom. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was good at the time. So you built all of this positive life experience and uh, future up for yourself. But then we know because you're a guest on my show that something went amiss. So take us on that journey. What happened? Well, what happened, I actually met my husband to a married to now, Stephen. We had been together for six years. We had got engaged um, and I was, I was 37. Um, so kind of an older mum, just never thought that, not that I didn't want children, I did, but just it was never the right time. Um, but in the, the March of 2007, I found out I was pregnant, totally by surprise, just, you know, didn't, didn't expect it. But unfortunately, six weeks into the pregnancy, we discovered it was an ectopic pregnancy. What is an ectopic pregnancy? It's when the egg is released and it sits in the fallopian tube and starts to grow within the fallopian tube. Uh -huh. So it's actually, a, it can be life-threatening for, for the woman who, who suffers it. So we ended up needing to have surgery because the fallopian tube was actually going to rupture. Um, so they took me down for surgery and removed the fallopian tube, obviously lost the baby as well. So that was a bit of a, after finding out I was pregnant, not really wanting to be pregnant, but then finding out I was and then finding out that I had lost it, it was quite a, it was difficult. It was a difficult thing to go through. Later on, um, 
in the year, um, in the in the June of 2008, we had been on holiday, just to give me time, because the, the surgery I got was was quite big surgery. It was it was kind of equivalent to a hysterectomy. You know, it was just like my tummy was cut, and so we went to the Dominican Republic on holiday. We went with my mum and my dad, and while I was there, I kind of started to kind of have wee dizzy turns in the morning. I felt, well, that's strange. So I came back, not thinking really very much of it, and then discovered I was actually pregnant again. So that, again, was a bit of a shock because the hospital had said to me, well, with your age, and because we're 38 now, with your age and also with the fact that you only have one fallopian tube, you know, the chances of you becoming pregnant would be quite difficult. So that was really a shocker, but I was happy, really happy, you know. So we, we kind of find out really early on, we find out when I was six weeks pregnant that, that you know, I, I was carrying a baby and the baby was in the womb. That was the other thing that concerned me, that it might be something that would crop up again about the, the topic. So quite early on, I was I was consultant-led at the hospital. The consultant was put in place very, very early on. Basically because of, because of what had happened, my past history, and also because of the fact that I was an old mother. Um, yeah, I was um, regularly seen at the hospital. Um, I would say roughly, roughly every two weeks I was being seen. But during the pregnancy, you know, people talk about like blossoming during pregnancy and glowing and I never had that. I just always looked tired and really, oh, always said to the doctor, you know, I don't feel right. I don't. And oh, it's just because you're pregnant. It's just your pregnancy. So I continually had said to them, I took them, I took the pregnancy itch that women get sometimes in relation to, I think it's liver enzymes that, that go up. And I took this really horrible pregnancy itch where everywhere was itchy. Um, and I took that at about five months. So I was at the hospital for that as well. And there wasn't really much they could do. There wasn't really much said about it at the time. And looking back now, like knowing what I know now, I realise how dangerous that can be for women. You know, your liver's not working properly and difficult for the baby. And so that was, you know, at the time, it, it was a horrible thing to be going through, but I didn't realise at the time just how serious it could be. And the doctor never really made much of a deal about it. You know, it was just like, well, you've got this pregnancy itch. And the last few months of pregnancy was difficult. I was struggling to breathe. Um, uh, when I was lying down on the bed, I felt like I was choking, you know, like there was fluid, like, and also my my feet and my ankles. Um, I wear a size, in the UK, it's a size five in the shoe. I had to wear a size eight because my feet had got so big that I couldn't even, I mean, I had no bend in my ankles saying this to the hospital, going up to the, you know, to speak to the midwives and they would all just, they would check baby, they would put me on a monitor, check baby's heartbeat, 
say baby's fine, and you know, on you go if you get, you know, you get a headache or take paracetamol. And the doctor, my own GP, I went to the GP because of the breathing. I was actually, um, when I was pregnant, I was actually in the middle of doing a, a university course. And one of the girls in the, in the class one day, she was sitting beside me and she said to me, wow, she says, I can actually hear you breathing. She says, like, I know, I said, I think I might have a chest infection. She said, all right. So I went to the GP. He said, he examined me, said, yeah, you've got a chest infection. There's some antibiotics. And this happened three times throughout the pregnancy. Um, I just got antibiotics. Going up, Kai was due um, to be born on the 3rd of April, and that was the date we had been given. My labour actually started a week early, on the 27th of March, um, at 10 o'clock at night, my labour started, and my husband was at work. He, uh, he was at work, so called him and said, oh, I think I'm in labour. He said, right, okay, well, hold on and wait till I come home. So he came home about half past two in the morning and we went to the hospital three o'clock in the morning and I went in um, expecting them to say actually you're you're not dilated enough you need to go home because that's what they do here if you're not far enough on they go home until you're far enough but when I went in they said oh you're actually five centimeters dilated you know, which is which is quite a lot for kind of doing it on your own. I was quite chuffed. I was, I thought, well, yeah, I'm doing okay here. Yeah, I'm managing. Because I was going into the hospital and I was going to take every drug and every pain thing that was going. I was that was the that was the idea. You know, this is just going to be. But I didn't. I ended up with an amazing midwife, who got me through most of the labour with just gas and air. I was doing really well, or so I thought. Half past seven in the morning, um, they came in to me and they said, your second stage of labor has slowed down. You need to keep an eye on it. Like reading again, what I know now is that when second stage labor slows down and it's any longer than an hour, it can cause severe problems for the, for the mum and the baby. No one told me this. Nobody spoke to me about it. Or they were also talking about using a drug called oxytocin, which they use here to kind of speed up the labour if it slows down. Now, in my medical notes, it states that they were talking about that, but they never used it, and I, I never found out why they didn't do that. Nine o'clock in the morning, um, 20 past nine, the consultant who delivered my son he came in to the room and he said, your second stage labour slowed down. We need to try and think of a way that we're going to deliver the baby um, that's safe for you and safe for, for the baby. I said, okay, you're a doctor, you know, what are you? With no discussion or no explanation, nothing at all. He said, we're going to do a Vontus delivery, which is a suction cap, the Vontus, okay? So it's like a suction cap, which they attach to the baby's head and then they basically pull the baby out. Now, the doctor had said to me that we only have three shots at this. 
they're only allowed to do it three times. But if you listen to me and you do what I tell you, you'll be fine. They also, there was a, I know there's a thing about, I knew about um, the episiotomies that they, they, they do and stuff like that. You know, they, they cut the women to kind of try and make it easier. They didn't do that with me. I know years ago, episiotomies were very standard during um, deliveries. But here in the UK, I don't know about where you are, but here in the UK, it's not standard now. They, they, they think that it, that it doesn't help, that it doesn't, you know, solve anything. There was no talk about that or anything. So the, the doctor came in and said, right, this is what we're going to do. You know, I said I was like frightened and scared and everything all at once. Listened to the doctor and he said, right, um, I'm going to put this on. And as I said, I've got three shots at it, so we'll do it. And so he did it the first time and baby didn't come. He did it the second and the baby was born. So Kai came, very, very quiet, no crying, no, not anything. And he was taken over to the side. Now, during that time, um, while Kai was being looked after by pediatric doctors and, and the midwives, the doctor who delivered Kai had kind of looked at me and said, well, I think you've maybe got a second degree tear. I said, OK, which is can outward tear, they can physically see that an outward tear. Now, what they, what they didn't tell me at the time, and which I know now, is that when a female has an assisted delivery of any type, they must carry out an internal examination using the thumb and the fourth and the index finger. Um, and that, <laughs> that's inserted inside the lady for an internal examination and that can tell them whether or not there has been any tear affecting the sphincter muscle and inside the anus and um, he didn't do that he didn't examine me at all the guidelines and protocols for doctors who do an assisted delivery whether it be forceps or the vontus which is the suction cap is that the only way to either rule out or confirm that there is either a third or fourth degree tear is to do a proper internal examination in a well-lit room, preferably a, you say preferably a, um, an operating theatre. And at that point, if a, a third or fourth degree tear is identified, it's then that the repair can take place. Um, and this allows for a better outcome because they obviously the wound is fresh, the muscles haven't had time to kind of heal in any way, no other way than so if they're pulled together, uh, it's it's supposed to be a you know a, a better way of getting a, a better outcome for the lady. They said, Oh, you've got a second degree tear, so we'll just stitch you up. So they they, they did stitches and Kai was checked out and I kind of got to hold Kai and stuff like that. And my mum was there, um, Stephen was there and my mum was there. Then a midwife came to me and she said, I'm going to send for the doctor again. And I said, okay, she says, just I can see a, I can see a stitch. She says, and I want to. So they paged the doctor and he didn't come for like, I think it was about two hours we waited. But during this time, um, 
as I'm saying, my mum was there um, checking on Kai and stuff, and I took a pain in my back. I could feel this pain, this really sharp pain. And I said to my mum, I said, Mum, you need to take Kai. I said, I've got this pain that's on my back. Just felt in between my, in between my shoulder blades. It was just this stabbing pain. So my mum took Kai and she said to the midwife, she said, someone needs to look at her. She's got a pain in her back. So at that time, they came over and they spoke to me and, and I just I felt really sickly and um, my temperature was like off the, I was like sweating and they were like putting like, you know, the face cloths you get, they were kind of wetting them and putting them on me. But as soon as they were putting them on me, they were dry because my temperature was just so high and I was being sick, violently sick. Kind of during this time, they did various tests. They did they did an x-ray in my back. They thought I'd had a blood clot, which had went into my lung. And then they said that they thought I might have um, had a heart attack. And then they said, oh, we don't know. You might have, it's called um, HELP syndrome. That's the kind of shortened version. But it is, it's the next step up from preeclampsia. And what it can do, it can cause you to go into, basically for you to have a, a cardiac arrest and go into a seizure. They had they had kind of ruled out everything out and then they had taken me for a bath. This is the, the you do when after you for the baby, you get a bath, came back to the room. They took me up to the delivery ward that, um, that all the other mums were in and I literally couldn't even sit up. I mean, I was literally curled up in a ball felt so bad and my baby was in at the bottom of the bed and they kind of and the, the cot thing they give you and I couldn't even pick him up and I was in this ward for maybe about 20 minutes and the next thing the the senior midwife and three other midwives came into me and they said we need to take you back down to the delivery room that you gave birth to Kai and I said okay and I was so ill at the time I just you know and I remember them pushing the bed and I remember the, the senior midwife saying to the midwives be gentle with the bed because I, my head was pounding and they were saying be gentle with the beds if not a shaker or so I got took back down to the room and I get put onto a heart monitor and while I was in the room, the consultant who I had been seeing throughout my pregnancy turned up at the hospital and he came into the room. He came and he looked at Kai and he came and he, he said, how are you? And I said, oh, feeling a bit better than I felt this morning. And he was like, oh, I just wanted to check. Now he, although he comes to the hospital that I gave birth in, he actually works in another hospital, which is about maybe 15 miles away. So he came from that hospital to see me. So he came in and, and he was just, oh, well, as long as you're OK. And so for the next, it was the next, the rest of that day, I was in the room with a midwife constantly sitting at my bed. I was hooked up to a heart monitor. And what I didn't know was that directly outside the room, they had placed the paddles so that if somebody goes into cardiac arrest, that they could restart my heart. 
I didn't know that at the time. I was in the ward till midnight, and then they came and they said to me, we're going to transfer you over to coronary care, the heart um, place, because um, we believe you've had some kind of episode with your heart, and we need to kind of get a doctor to see you over there. And I said, well, what about, what about my baby? He said, well, Kai will stay here. Kai will go to special care um, and you'll be in coronary care. And I was, okay. So they took me over there and I was there that night and the cardiologist came in in the morning and he kind of looked at me and he said, um, we think you've, you've had a thing called uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy. And I said, okay, uh, what is that? <laughs> And he said, it's, um, he says, it's heart failure. He says, but during pregnancy, he said, some women get pregnancy-induced heart failure. And I said, okay. So he said, so um, we need to do some tests just now to check that there was a part, there was one chamber of my heart that wasn't pumping properly. He said, we're going to put you on medication and we're going to do some various tests, we need to check that you haven't had a heart attack and that there's no other damage, there's no blockage or anything in, in the arteries. He said, so we'll do that over the next few days. Kai was born on a Friday, so this was a Saturday morning. And I had said to them, well, when can I go and see my baby? When can I see Kai? So because I was, because I was so ill and didn't realise I was as ill, they wouldn't let me go on my own. I had to be taken over by a, by a nurse who carried a res, um, resuscitation bag with her at all times and um, a porter who pushed me over in a wheelchair. This was kind of, this became like a kind of a daily thing. I could really only go over and see him once a day. Um, Kai, Kai became ill as well um, while he was in, um, in a special care and he had a a few issues which were all resolved, but he was over there ill and I couldn't be with him. But the other thing that happened to me was the day after giving birth to Kai, my right buttock turned black, completely black. I couldn't sit on it. When I was being wheeled over to see Kai, I was actually sitting on the, you know, like kind of holding myself up in the wheelchair so that my buttock wasn't resting on the seat. And I, and I said to them in the coronary care, I said, I have got this pain and it's excruciating. I'd never felt anything like it. And they were saying, oh, don't worry, it'll just, just be down to the delivery because you needed to get stitches. So it's just because of the delivery. So two days later, my husband came in and I was crying and he said, what's wrong? And I said, this, this is really, really bad, this pain. So he went and he spoke to one of the nurses in the coronary care and bearing in mind, I'm in coronary care and they deal kind of with the, the waist up and everything that I was, I had going on was from the waist down. So they were really unsure what was going on. So what they did is they put in a call to the, um, uh, the maternity team to say, look, this woman needs to be seen. Nobody had been over to check me over or see if I was okay or, or anything. They, nobody had appeared. 
So on the Monday morning, um, my midwife came over and she had a look and she said, oh, she said, yeah, it's really black. It's, there's a big bruise there. And she says, hopefully it'll just disperse in time. She says, and we'll give you some massaging for it, she says, to try and like disperse it, she says, so it won't be so sore. I said, okay. So they also started, they were also giving me morphine for the for the pain. So on the, the Tuesday afternoon, um, they decided that I needed to go to another hospital in Glasgow, which is probably about 12 miles away from the hospital I was in. And I had to go over there to get specialist tests done for my heart. So I had to be transferred over there. So I was being transferred on the, um, the Wednesday morning and I was waiting on the ambulance coming. And they gave me my morphine for the pain. And I was fine going over in the ambulance and we arrived and got into the, the ward again. It was coronary care, we got into the ward. I had phoned my mum and my older sister. And I said, look, I've been transferred to another hospital will you come and see me this afternoon the thing about it, the hospital that I was transferred to was closer to them they were only like 10 minutes away so it was much closer for them um, but in the meantime Kai was still in the original hospital so at this point Kai was what five days old was transferred my sister and my mum came up to see me when they came into the ward I was lying on the bed and was actually like like squirming up the bed, you know, moving with the pain. I literally could not lie with the pain. And my sister said, what's wrong? And I said, my, I said, pain, I said, I can't take this anymore. So my sister went out and she spoke to the nurse. And she said, my sister's in there, she was brought over today. And the nurse is like, oh, I don't know anything about giving morphine. She said, I'll need to look up her records and if she's to get it, I'll give her it after the visiting time. So that was fine. So she did. She came in and I got an injection. I was in bed and I must have I must have dozed off, must have fell asleep. I wakened up, couldn't have been sleeping that long. And I wakened up and I felt the bed wet. And I put my hand under and looked and it was covered in blood. There was blood all over my hand. So I was just like, right, okay, so pressed the buzzer for the nurse. The nurse came in and I said, I said, I'm bleeding. And she said, all right, okay. So she buzzed again and another nurse came in. So what they did was they got me out of bed. And as I got out of bed, the blood was, was just pouring, like pouring on the floor. So then they said, oh, sit in the seat. So I sat in the seat next to the bed. And then there was, before I knew it, there must have been 10 doctors and nurses all round about me in this. It was like a cubicle I was in. It wasn't even a private ward. It was like the curtain was drawn and there was other people in the ward. So one of the doctors, one of the, a gynecologist eventually came and he brought down, I don't know what you call them in over, over there, but it's the, when a lady gets a smear test, the, the speculum that goes inside to open up the cervix. He had that and he was inserted that inside me to try and look and see. And as he did that, there was another release of blood. He must have done that maybe five, six times. And they then decided that 
I needed to go to intensive care. That in itself, then putting that that inside me, um, being on five days after giving birth, and I've got stitches on the outside, and the pain is a pain I have a hundred times worse than childbirth. Even when I think about it now, it it scares me. I was so frightened. So they took me up to intensive care and they phoned my husband and they said, you need to come in. You need to come in now. So the doctors were there. Um, they had to wait on a senior anaesthetist coming because of the heart condition. And there was doctors like all in. So this had happened about maybe about four in the afternoon. And it was about half past 10, 11 o'clock at night before they could do the surgery. And I remember, I mean, I've had, I've had surgeries in the past. I got my tonsils and stuff out when I was younger. But I remember being put to sleep before going into the operating theatre. That night, they wheeled me straight into the operating theatre. And I remember seeing all the doctors and nurses all gowned up, masks, everything. And I remember I had my had my wedding ring and my engagement ring on. And I remember that was always a thing in the past for surgeries. They would say, oh, we need to take your engagement ring off and we'll tape your wedding ring. But I said to the nurse when she was wheeling me in, I said, I've still got my engagement ring on. And she said, don't worry about that, sweetheart. She says, we'll deal with that. And it wasn't until after that, you know, you start thinking about all the wee things that, that take place and you think, oh my God, you know, that was, you know, so they took me in um, and they discovered that I had a six centimetre tear in the back of my vagina wall that had been bleeding into my buttock for five days. And that had been missed because he didn't carry out an internal examination. So they had to repair, they had to repair that. The doctor's words to my husband were, she's been left in an awful mess. She should never have been left like that. So I ended up in intensive care after that. Um, and I needed, I think it was, it was four or five pints of blood I needed, blood transfusion, stuff like that. I told my husband that the next 24 hours would be, would kind of be the most kind of bit to worry about, if you like. But I came through it, I was fine. And the while I was there, they moved me back down to the normal ward, the coronary care ward, and they managed to basically do all the tests that needed to be done for my heart and um, to rule out a heart attack and everything like that. So I had been separated from Kai for 10 days, hadn't seen him in 10 days, been at a point where I could possibly have died, you know. And I remember the, the day, the very first day, that I was in a normal ward after being transferred back from intensive care to the normal ward. And I remember sitting in the bed and having this fear that that pain was going to come back. And I remember I was in the room crying. One of the auxiliary nurses came in and she said, what's wrong, why are you crying? And I said, I'm so scared that that pain's going to come back. I mean, I was terrified. I mean, Kai was 10 days, well, he was 12 days old. Um, I was eventually discharged from the hospital. And they had said that 
Yeah, it was postpartum cardiomyopathy. I had heart failure. I hadn't had a heart attack and there was no there's no huge damage done to my heart, but I would be on medication basically for the rest of my life. You know, I was kind of more interested in, in seeing my baby. It was, you know, I couldn't wait to get back and see this beautiful wee guy that I had left, you know, just there when, and he, as I'm saying, he was ill and he had his own issues going on. And, you know, it was, it was difficult. Kai, we eventually got Kai home from hospital he was three weeks old when I brought him home. And that was another big, big thing for me. When when a woman becomes pregnant, you know, well, for me, it was like, I imagined coming home from the hospital with this baby and the balloons and the banners and, you know, everything was going to be all, and it, and it wasn't like that. You know, I was scared. I was lonely. I was everything, you know, I had this, this wee baby that I was having to look after and I was ill, you know, myself. I was out of the hospital maybe about three days and I started to notice that I was having trouble. Well, when I was going to the toilet, I wasn't managing to hold my waist. Basically, I was messing myself and I couldn't, couldn't understand, you know, I thought maybe this is something that happens after you've had a baby and then everything will go back to normal. It was the very first Sunday that we had Kai out of hospital and me and Stephen said, well, we'll take him for a walk in his new pram. You know, this <laughs> new pram. We put him in his pram and the two of us were out walking, you know, the proud parents. And I was probably about five minutes away from my house when my bowels gave way and I messed myself in the street everywhere. So went back home and jumped in a shower and was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed in front of Stephen and it was just, you know, and this this then went on. So when Kai was six weeks old, we went back to the hospital to have a meeting with the consultant who had looked after me during my pregnancy and the, the main midwife who had been there. And we were really going back to ask why why the heart failure had been, hadn't been detected and why the six centimetre tear had, had been missed. And they apologised. They said that, you know, heart failure in pregnancy is very, very rare, but they understand it happens. And uh, they apologised. They said a lot of symptoms that come with postpartum cardiomyopathy is like the swelling of the feet, the shortness of breath, the tiredness, and that can kind of mimic normal pregnancy signs. And they apologised for the six centimetre tear. They just said it shouldn't have happened. I asked the doctor who delivered Kai to be there at the, at the meeting to explain to me why. Um, I wasn't aware at the time that, that I should have had an internal examination. I didn't know any of this. And I asked him to come and explain to me why, why he had missed that. He didn't turn up at the meeting. He just didn't come. Um, so while we were at the meeting, um, the doctor said to me, is there anything else that you're concerned about or worried about? Or, and I said, no, I don't think so. My husband said, yes, there is. So she's, she's not managing to control her bowels. And the doctor says, what do you mean? And I said, well, I basically have no control over them. When I need to go, 
did you, I just go? I said, I can't, I'm not making it to the toilet in time. And, and he said, how often is this happening? And I said, if not every day, I said every second day. He says, we need to refer you to another department, he said, to, to find out what's going on. He says, there's a chance that you could have a, a sphincter injury that's not been detected and we need to rule that out. For the next 10 months, I was back looking forward to hospitals, getting all sorts of tests done. And they eventually identified that I had actually had a third stroke, fourth degree tear of the sphincter muscle, which again had been missed at the time of delivery, um, which was causing the bowel incontinence. So when Kai was 13 months old, I had to go in and have repair surgery carried out. But for them to do that, I had to have a, a stoma fitted, a colostomy bag, to bring a bit of my bowel through the, my, my tummy and the wall outside and I, I wore a bag. And they did this to allow for the repair to heal. Unfortunately, the repair didn't work. They had left it too long, 13 months after, after the injury and they were only trying to repair it. So they, I wore the colostomy bag for eight months and then they did a reversal and I found out that it hadn't worked. So we're now, Kai is um, Kai's 13 next Sunday and I'm still bowel incontinent. I still suffer every day. I lost my job. I lost all my self-confidence. Um, used to be really outgoing, you know, first up, first up for partying and dancing. And I mean, I had a newborn baby and I would be out with him, maybe shopping or something. And I would have an accident in the middle of, in the middle of shopping, you know, it was so destroying. And it got to a point where I worked um, for an organization and I had been off for, I'd been off for over a year. And they said, you know, we can't keep your post open any longer. I, I was just devastated, you know, that was my career. That was everything I had worked for. And I just had enough. I basically just wanted to die. I wanted, I just felt I was no use to anyone. You know, I was this, this mother who couldn't look after the child properly. And I wasn't the same wife that my husband had married. And, you know, I wasn't the same daughter and everything had, had gone, everything. I just basically, I just wanted to die. And actually, I had been through the, it was when I had the colostomy bag and stuff on and that was such a difficult, difficult time. Because um, it ended up, it, they, they said they were going to give me a, a colostomy, which is attached to the large bowel. Um, so the, the fecal matter that comes out is quite well formed when it comes out and people who have got colostomy bags can actually manage them quite well. Um, they know that maybe half an hour after eating, they will need to go and empty their bag kind of thing. When I was in the hospital to get the surgery, they couldn't bring any of my large bowel through for some reason. So they brought through a part of my small bowel. So it was actually an ileostomy that I got. The thing about ileostomy is it's all fluid that comes out. It's like, and it just comes constantly. There was no, I had no control over it. It would leak 
you know, it would go everywhere. And then when I had to change it, I would take it off and it would still be coming. So it would be kind of, it was spurting up over walls and stuff. It was horrendous. I was, I was so, I was, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to be around my husband, to be around my family. And I felt disgusting. I felt awful. Where we are just now is um, four years ago, they inserted, it's a sacral nerve uh, stimulator. And part of the damage done during the tear was I had nerve damage too. So they inserted this, it's like a pacemaker and it sits in my right buttock and it's supposed to send signals to my sacral nerve to let me know when I need to go to the toilet. But the problem I have is I still have a tear within my sphincter muscle. My sphincter muscle never fully closes. So although the signs have been sent to say, you need to go to the toilet, it's, it's almost like, I can I say to people, it's like when you put your, your tap on your bathroom and the water runs, if you don't put a plug in, it just runs through. Well, it's like that for me. You know, it's almost like it just continually runs. So the pacemaker um, in my buttock is, it doesn't, it doesn't help at all. Um, and they've said now that the only, the next step is for me to have a clothes in bag and wear it for the rest of my life. That's where we're at now with that. <laughs> wow. Wow. So... <laughs> Who could have imagined when you were going in to have birth that all of this negative would have come out of multiple medical errors? Um, just to bring us up to the present, so how are you feeling about having, or the, the option of moving in and having a colostomy bag? I don't want it. I don't, I don't, I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I've spoken to people that have cosmic bags and I've researched stuff. And I know that people say, oh, it gives you your life back. You, because you can go and maybe it's because I've had um, the experience of an ileostomy because it wasn't like that for me. It was, um, you know, it was, it, I couldn't go anywhere because it, it would leak and, you know, and it would fill up really quickly and maybe it would be different. I don't know, but you know, the thing about it is as well that here in the UK, there isn't an awful lot of support for it. There isn't an awful lot of like doctors saying, oh, you might need the colostomy bag, so let's get you some some counselling or some therapy or some or talk about it. And I mean the only time I ever seen a I seen a um a stoma nurse, they call them stoma nurses, seen a stoma nurse back when they were talking about first doing the surgery and I seen her after it to teach me how to take care of it but after it's been taken away um, and during the talk of perhaps needing it nobody nobody spends time with you you know nobody takes the time to say you know this is what it could be like and I think it's I think the thing about it is is that you know you think about people having babies and people having stomas and you think it's what must be the same for everybody and it's not everybody's experience is different and that's a big thing here as well that you know has to be patient-led it has to be 
for that particular patient, you know, and, and you don't find that, you know, everything is very, this is what we do and this is how we do it, regardless of, you know, what you've went through and, and that, and I feel really, really let down that way as well. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you're not getting all of the information you deserve in order to make an informed decision about whether or not to go the colostomy bag. You said that support's just not there. Um, so how, how are you feeling about the medical system now and, and the legal system, if that played into this at all? It did play into it, actually. Um, when, due to the fact of the, it was more of the six centimeter tear that was the that was the issue for me. I think because that, at the time, that caused me the most fear. I mean, I ended up being diagnosed post traumatic stress, and it was because of that. So when we when we found out about that, I, I contacted a lawyer to talk about it. They said, "Yeah, you've got a case. You know, yeah, it's it's been missed and and." For the next 10 years after that, I fought that in court, um, being represented by four different lawyers who, for various reasons, would take on the case, you know, kind of run with the case and then decide, no, no, we're not going to run with this, you know, and to a point where I was actually at the, at the court session in Edinburgh twice and had to stand and represent myself in front of the Lord that was that was there and say, I don't have a I don't have a legal team. They have basically walked away from the case. Um, and every time twice I did that, he would say, Okay, I'll give you four weeks to go and find another another legal team to fight your case. And I managed to do it and then finally the medical people basically said that I wasn't bowel incontinent because of my injury. I was bowel incontinent because of IBS. I had never been diagnosed with IBS. I have never been treated for IBS. But they said that that was the reason that I was bowel incontinent. And the legal team who, who got that report basically said, okay, we need to walk away. Now, I had, we had um, legal cover um, when we first started it. Um, the legal cover was all used up. So because I had lost my job and stuff, we have a system in the UK called Legal Aid. So if you're struggling to pay and you have a case, the public money is used to support your case. Um, but to, for them to support it, they have to be sure that there's a a definite case that can be can be answered to and because they said that it was a condition of IBS then legal aid stopped funding the case so I ended up getting nowhere no explanation no anything and I've since found out that because there was no explanation or no nothing given to me about what he was going to do to me, what the outcome could possibly be, what alternatives I had. I mean, here in the UK, if 
if a doctor's going to carry out a procedure and there's even a 1% chance that something can go wrong, they need to tell you. Um, he didn't do that. I was also looking at the non-informed consent that, um, that he had, because it was a huge case here a few years ago. They used to base the, um, the legal stuff on a case called Hunter v Hanley in the UK. It basically said if there was another doctor who would do what your doctor did, then you don't have a case. But now they've changed it and it's it's kind of more based on this new ruling called the Montgomery ruling, um, which is about informed consent. And I had asked lawyers to include that in my case because I believe that that was part of the case. But the lawyers let me down. You know, they, they just they let me down. So, no, I've been let down by legal and medical professionals. I mean, the medical professionals who were involved getting expert reports for like the NHS. I mean, I had a, they sent me to London to see a specialist um, a colonoscopy doctor, a bowel doctor, and I was in tears. He had me in tears in his office, wanting me to quantify how much fecal matter I would lose in a day. You know, haven't he just, I mean, I was, how do you, how do you justify that? Even having a slight accident is, is can be traumatic for people, you know. But he was wanting me, and he, you know, had flew away down to London, and I was, I was literally in tears, and it was all because he was saying, you know, I don't think it's as bad as you're saying it is, you know, I don't think this, I don't think that, and I was just like, wow, how can this, how can this be? You go in to have a baby, you end up, you know, under a heart doctor and a um, and um, colorectal surgeons for the rest of your life, you know. And the thing about it is, if he had checked me at the time, if he had taken time to do a proper examination and carry out the the, um, the repair at the time, there's a huge chance that I would not have suffered anything what I did suffer. You know, so it was the opportunity was there, it just wasn't taken. And there's been no explanation as to why he didn't do that. Wow. Yeah. The loss that you've suffered is just so great. And on so many levels, your career, personally, socially, um, and then layered on top of that, the, the trauma, the multiple traumas from the medical system, and then also being abandoned slash betrayed by the legal system, which is often working in tandem with the medical system against patients. So in spite of that horrendous journey you've been on and still continue to be on, how have you dealt with that? How have you dealt with the trauma? What gives you hope to move forward? Do you know what gives me hope? Kai, my boy, he he gives me hope every day when I look at him. You know, he is, he's the, he's definitely a gift from God. You know, he's been, God knew that I needed somebody to kind of keep me going. And you know, I often wonder that, you know, having the ectopic pregnancy, and that was really sad, you know, losing that baby. But if I had that baby, I wouldn't have had Kai. And and I think Kai was sent for a reason, you know, and he's the reason I'm here. You know, there's um, 
there's been times that have been really, really dark for me where I've wanted to take my life and actually contemplated it and worked out how I would do it. Kai, you just, he, he's my protector. He's, he's my angel, you know, and, and watching him every day and growing into the beautiful boy that he is. He is so caring and loving and, and he, you know, he says to me every single day, mum, you're beautiful. You know, even in days when I don't feel it, he'll say, mum, you are beautiful. You know, and I'm like, ugh. And he's like, no, mum, you are. You know, and he'll tell me every day, about 10 times, I love you, mum. I love you, mum. And that, you know, if somebody said to me, you know, we'll take Kai back and we'll, but we'll make everything okay, I would say, no, no, no. Leave, just leave me as I am. I have my boy and he's the, he's the reason for me being here now. Wow. So it really sounds like you've moved into that phase after post-trauma called growth, where you're there's a level of acceptance and you found meaning in your experience. And it sounds like it's through Kai. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that too. Yeah, he's he's it, you know. Well, Carol, uh it has been really hard to listen to your story, but also inspiring at the same time, because you're here to tell about it and help other people hopefully avoid the same sort of outcome that you've had. Um, if not on an individual level, then you know, hopefully the system will change around how they should be doing things. So- yeah, I, I, tried, I tried to get some change at, it was most for the the heart failure. Um, I, I'd set up a petition about eight years ago and got signatures and took it through to the parliament in Edinburgh for them to, I discovered through, again, reading and looking at things that there's a, there's a blood test that can be taken that would indicate that enzymes are raised when you are possibly in the process of heart failure. And I tried to get them to include that in all maternity care. So it was just a simple blood test. And if it indicated something, deal with it. And if it didn't, then but I'm still fighting for that to be included for uh, in maternity care. Just trying to make a change somewhere. I mean, as I say, it's, it's too late for me now. You know, I, it was another thing. I can't have any more kids, you know. Um, and that was a, that's kind of heartbreaking too. But I've got two beautiful nieces one who's going to be a mum very soon and another one um, and I don't want them or anybody else to go through if, if I have the ability to say no hold on that shouldn't be happening you know and I think if anything comes out of my story it's about you know take control say to them I don't like this this isn't you know this shouldn't be happening so it's about being able to say that um, and that's that's basically why you know I do I'm sharing my story. Yeah, that that's so important. Being empowered to be a self advocate when your life is hanging in the balance of your life and your future. So, if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, where would they find you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter at Kai Baby, <laughs> as you said, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, under Carol Sunnox, 
anybody at all. I've had a few people, my story's kind of been in a couple of newspapers, um, more to do with the heart thing because of the petition. You know, more than willing to, to speak to anybody or share my story again, whatever, whatever helps. Great, okay, and I'll include links to your Twitter and your Facebook in the show notes so people can find you that way too. So thank, thank you. you so much, Carol, for sharing your experience and for the work you're doing to try to change this system, which sometimes seems like it's just unchangeable, but you keep forging ahead. So thank you for that. Okay, thank you for letting me share my story. Well, a big thanks to Carol for sharing her experiences with the healthcare system. And thanks to you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, on any of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.